Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole, and today's episode is all about real estate. Now, real estate is something that people don't just have opinions on. They have very, very strongly held opinions on it. And so today, we're going to be talking all about real estate and specifically how it might fit into your retirement plans. Now, this is a question that came from a listener, and listener's name is Dwayne, and Dwayne says this. He says, I've been enjoying your podcast. Any chance you could do a segment on rental property as an income stream for retirement? Is it a good idea or not? I have mixed feelings, but would like to hear your thoughts. Well, I would like to share my thoughts, and these thoughts, I will preface this by saying I am not a serious, serious real estate investor when this is something you're doing for a living. There's a different way that you're looking at real estate. What I'm going to try to do is try to simplify this and try to simplify the approach to the extent that we can see how does this make sense for your retirement plan? Is this a good income stream for retirement? Is this a good way to diversify? Is this good as it pertains to the final outcome, which is, is this going to help you live a more secure, more comfortable retirement? So just a quick disclaimer here. This is not the only way. Really, this isn't even the way to look at real estate investing, but from a practical standpoint, it very much is. So with a simple overview of this, I'm going to go into a couple things. And like with many things, there is the financial answer of what's correct financially. And then there's what answer is correct for you. So this isn't real estate is good or real estate is bad. It's not even a real estate is good if this and real estate is bad if this. It's really just exploring how do you even think about real estate in the context of your financial plan. Now to start, whenever we're looking at something that's an investment like real estate is, There's no such thing as, is this a good investment or bad investment? There's a number of factors that you want to explore, but one of which is you need to know compared to what? Let's say you get a 5% return. Is that a good investment? Well, compared to what? What if you get a 10% return? Is that a good investment? What about a 15% rate of return? Is that a good investment? You always have to say compared to what? Because you might hear 15% and say, wow, yeah, that's a great return. What if the market's up 30%? Is it still a good investment? Or you might hear 5% and say, oh, that's a pretty lousy return. Well, what if everything else was down 15%? Now is that a good investment? So there has to be some relative understanding of how does this investment, not just what role does it play, but how does it compare to other potential investments? So with that in mind, let's start with a benchmark. Not saying it's a perfect benchmark, but it's just a starting point. The S&P 500, so an index that measures the performance of some of the biggest companies in the United States, historically, it's grown by 5% per year. Now, that's an average over, call it 90, 100 plus years or so, but the average return has been about 10%. So I'm going to circle back to that towards the end of the episode, but just start with that as a benchmark. So the next step from there is to understand how do you understand the performance of real estate? And there's also non-financial factors, which we're going to explore towards the end, But we need to understand what is the return of real estate so that we have that to compare to our benchmark. So the return of real estate, there's a few different components that make that up. The first is just the appreciation. So what is the increase in the asset value? And this one's a little bit tough because depending on what region of the country you're in, you've probably had a different appreciation in the price of real estate. Now, this is from CEIC. When we look at March of 2022, 
housing as a whole, residential real estate grew by 17.5% year over year. So we are coming off a period where housing has exploded in terms of the increase in value of homes around the country. So if you look at a nationwide average in March of 2022, housing had appreciated over 17%. was at 17.4%. You look at some areas of the country and that number was 20, 25% or more. So we are coming off a time period where real estate has increased substantially when you just look at it as a value. Now, if we look back at, say, the last 30 years from March of 1992 to March of 2022, the national average growth rate has been about 5.3%. So you can look at that and you could argue that that number is high. You could say, okay, well, that's because interest rates have been falling for the last 30 years, making it easier and easier and easier for people to buy more and more house. So that has increased to a growth rate in the value of real estate that's not necessarily sustainable. You could also argue that number will continue. You could say, well, look at demand for housing, look at everyone that wants to buy. There's demand, there's not enough supply, so that number will continue. You could make the argument on either side. I'm not going to make that argument today, though I probably tend to believe that number is higher over the last 30 years and it will likely be going forward, but that's irrelevant for the course of today's conversation. For today's conversation, I just want to unpack how do you even start to understand the return on real estate. And the first thing that you want to look at is what's the appreciation in that. So for the sake of this example, let's use 5% as a round number. You're exploring using rental real estate versus other investment types. Let's use 5% as a starting point for what you can expect that appreciation in real estate to be. Again, that is not a guarantee. That's not even a suggestion of what you might earn, but let's just use that for example. So in the same way that when you buy a stock, it's not just the appreciation of the stock that you're looking at you also might have a dividend on that stock. So if I go buy AT&T stock, for example, and AT&T increases in value by 5%, and AT&T also pays a dividend of 5%, what we're going to do is we're going to combine those two things. If I had $100 of AT&T stock at the beginning of the year, that grew to $105, and I also received a $5 dividend on top of that, the total return was 10%, the 5% plus 5%. Well, the same thing with real estate. The appreciation is not the only component of the return. You also have income. So let's say that you buy a home that's $500,000 and let's assume that you rent it out. So you're using this as an investment. We now have to explore what's the income that you can expect from that. The income is kind of like the dividend on a stock. Again, that's not a perfect example. And again, if you're a real estate investor listening to this, you're probably rolling your eyes. But from a practical standpoint of how do you look at this in the light of your retirement plan, That's where we're going to go today. Now, with real estate, and typically this is more with commercial real estate, but you're looking at something called the cap rate or the capitalization rate. And what that is, is you're looking at what's called the net operating income, which is just the annual income that that piece of real estate is generating minus the expenses. So net operating income divided by the current market value. So after expenses, what's the net income that you're receiving each year? And then divide that by the market value. So expenses, these expenses include things like the cost towards the upkeep of the facility. These include things like property taxes. One note is this does not include mortgage interest. Mortgage interest is more a cost of capital. It's the cost of debt. What does it cost you to borrow? But that's not a cost of the home per se. The net operating income is looking at things like property taxes, maintenance, upkeep, things like that, things that are intrinsic to owning the property. So if we go back to our example, if you have a rental property and it's worth $500,000, maybe you charge $30,000 per year in rent. 
This will, of course, be dramatically different depending on what part of the country you're in. But let's assume that you have $30,000 per year in rent. You can't consider that full $30,000 as income because there are expenses associated with maintaining that property. Maybe the property tax rate is 1%. Well, that's $5,000 per year in property taxes. Maybe we're going to use the general rule of 1% of you're going to pay 1% per year in just general upkeep, which is the maintenance of the home. Well, that's another $5,000. So if our income is $30,000, but then we back out $5,000 for property taxes, we back out $5,000 for upkeep, our net income is $20,000. Now, if we divide that net income of $20,000 by the property value of $500,000, what we see is the cap rate is 4%. So in the same way, you might see a stock that has a dividend yield of 2%, 3%, 4%, whatever it is, this is kind of like the dividend yield in a stock. Again, not a perfect example, but it's going to be close enough. So as you're looking at this, in our example, the cap rate is 4%. And again, this is going to be very, very different in different parts of the country. I live in San Diego. Many properties here, many rental real estate properties here have cap rates of 3% or less. My brother owns a property, a rental property in Midland, Texas. When he purchased that property, the cap rate was around 12% at the time he bought it. I'm sure that's fallen as rental or as home prices have increased over the past couple of few years, but you can start to see there is going to be a discrepancy in these numbers in different parts of the country due to different risk factors, due to different desirability of living or standard of living factors that go into that. So this is going to be different, but the equation is going to be the same. So in our example so far, we're assuming capital appreciation of 5%. We're assuming a cap rate of 4%. So far, we're at a 9% total return for our investment. If I go back to our benchmark, looking at the S&P 500, that's at 10%. So, so far, if we're just stripping out everything else, we can start to get a general sense of how does this investment compare to other types of investments. Now, the interesting thing about real estate is there's other factors that go into the calculation of the rate of return. One of the biggest is leverage. Let's say you buy a $500,000 home, and let's assume that you put 20% down. Well, your investment is $100,000. Now let's assume the value of that home goes up 10%. I'm going to exclude all costs to keep this a very simple example, but that 10% is a $50,000 increase. So my $500,000 home increased 10%, meaning it went up to $550,000, an increase of $50,000. That represents a 50% return on investment, even the real estate only increased by 10%, the value of my investment increased by 50%. In reality, it wouldn't be that high because I have to factor in things like property taxes, upkeep, maintenance, etc. But in this simple example, you can see how leverage can really start to skew the return upwards. If the value of your home is increasing and you have any amount of leverage on that property, you are going to experience a greater return than just the simple return or simple growth of the asset as a whole. Now, that's on the upside, and unfortunately, the same is true on the downside. Let's say the value of the home goes down, and let's assume it goes down by 20%. Well, if you bought your home for $500,000, and then just miraculously overnight, although I don't know if that would be a miracle, but overnight, the the value of the home drops by 20%. Well, now, the home is only worth $400,000. Well, your mortgage is also $400,000 because you put 20% down and you finance the rest. What that means is your investment, on paper at least, is now worth nothing you had a return on investment of negative 100%. So leverage works with you on the way up, but it also works against you on the way down. So that's a really big factor when you're looking at the rate of return. 
it's not as simple as comparing it to a stock, which yes, you could buy on margin, but typically you're not. I would typically say it's not advisable. If you buy a stock, you are putting 100% of the cash down. If you buy real estate, you're typically not putting 100% of cash down. You certainly can, but when you're putting less than the required amount down or when you're putting less than the full amount down, that leverage is also skewing your return upwards if markets go up and also downwards if market goes down. Now, if you have cash, just kind of a practical standpoint here, and you can stick it out, then you're fine. And I'm going back to that example of the market dropping 20%. And on paper, oh my gosh, you have an asset that's worth nothing. Well, if you have cash and you can stick it out and the market recovers, you're going to be fine. But this was the risk. And this is what happened in 2008. People put very little down. Lending requirements by the banks were way too lenient. So people put very little money down, which allowed housing prices to go up and up and up. There was bad incentives, of course, for banks and for Wall Street. And then a recession hit and people lost their jobs. They didn't have income to cover their mortgage. They didn't have enough cash to cover their mortgage. And all of a sudden their home is underwater. Because if you put 5% down on a home and that home value drops just 5%, well, your investment is completely wiped out. If that home drops 10%, we saw homes dropping much more than that in 2008. Now you're significantly underwater. And when you look at a 10% downturn on an asset as substantial as a home, those dollars add up very quickly. So you could start to see the risk there. Now, if you have cash, if you have a well-funded emergency fund, if you have another source of income to see through it, you're probably going to be okay. But when you're using leverage and when you have an asset that's as illiquid as rental real estate, you really need to make sure you've done some other things with your financial plan to ensure that you're solvent, to ensure that you can maintain that property. Because if prices go up, then you'll be okay over time. But sometimes it requires weathering the storm when downturns happen. Now, another factor that's going to increase or that's going to impact, I should say, the return on investment you can expect from real estate is the tax benefits. So you get depreciation when you have rental real estate and depreciation is kind of like this phantom expense that you can write off against the income you are receiving, but it's not technically an expense. It's just the depreciation of your property. So there's some tax benefits in there too. And we have to factor those tax benefits into the rate of return, but it's not as simple as just a black and white equation like capital appreciation is or like the income is. So when we look at all this, as you're trying to compare apples to apples and say, okay, what's the better decision for me? Should I do rental property in retirement? Should I do something different? Well, start here. My standpoint, and this is just a very simple way of looking at it, I'm not going to touch rental real estate unless I can generate a return that's far superior to the stock market. Why is that? Well, with real estate, you have to deal with tenants and that could be totally fine or it could be totally a nightmare scenario. With real estate, you have to put kind of your own time, your own effort, your own energy into this. With real estate, there's actually more risk. What if there's a flood? What if there's a fire? What if there's a natural disaster? If you have one single piece of property, sure, there's going to be some insurance, but you might be carrying some cost of having no tenants in a property for a long period of time. There's just more cost. There's more time. There's more effort. There's more headache. And to me, if I'm looking at the S&P 500 just as a benchmark, and I'm saying I can get 10% there. And I know I don't have to attend meetings. I don't have to find tenants. I don't have to repair broken sprinklers. I don't have to care for a property. I don't have to worry about this when I'm on vacation overseas. That to me is far more attractive than a piece of real estate that's generating 10%. But I do have to do all those different things. So I'm not going to say rental real estate isn't a good thing. It can absolutely be a good thing. But my own personal preference is I want to see that returning something that's definitely superior 
to what a fully passive unmanaged investment could do for me, or at least historically has done for me over time. So that's the first thing and probably the most important foundational layer to viewing real estate and seeing, is this making sense in light of my financial plan? The second thing is this, is with real estate, yes, the appreciation matters. Yes, that's certainly a component of the return. But if you don't ever plan to sell, then the appreciation doesn't matter so much. I don't want to say it doesn't matter. That's not the right way of saying it. But as it pertains to your ability to retire, you're retiring on income. You're not retiring on the value of your home. So let's say you're in San Diego, as I mentioned. I compared San Diego cap rates. Let's just say 3%. It's not that across the board. I'm just looking across a few properties I know specifically. Let's say you have a cap rate of 3%. Well, if you have a million-dollar home, that's $30,000 of net income that you can receive on an annual basis. If you have a million dollars in a portfolio, you could probably generate fifty dollars to $55,000 per year on an annual basis. So that's how you actually need to look at it unless you're planning on selling. Because even if San Diego real estate just keeps climbing at 10% year over year after year after year, well, great, that's a wonderful investment. But how does it pertain to your retirement plan? Unless you are selling that property or unless you're somehow refinancing or doing a reverse mortgage on it or doing something to access that equity, the appreciation, yes, it matters, but it's not actually helping you pay the bills. It's not actually helping you to retire because that equity is tied up in the property. Now compare that to that property in Texas that I mentioned that had a cap rate of 12%. Well, that could be a wonderful source of income. You maybe don't care so much about the appreciation of the property. Yes, obviously you want it. Yes, obviously appreciation is more ideal than depreciation, but that 12% cap rate, that's generating income, say on a million dollar property of 120 grand per year. That's probably a lot more. It's certainly a lot more than you can sustainably generate from a portfolio of stocks and bonds and other assets. So as you're looking at this, start with the rate of return just to get a general sense of what can you expect versus a benchmark. Then start to understand that even though that rate of return is the total, the total return that you're going to get, that doesn't necessarily mean you can live on it all. With stocks and bonds and liquid investments, you can sell the investment at any time. With real estate, not just sell, but you can sell a piece of that investment at any time. If I have a million dollar portfolio and it increases to say $1.1 million and I want to live on 60000 well, I can just trim off $60,000 that entire portfolio. If I have a piece of real estate, I can't just sell 5% of it. I can't just sell 6% of it. I'm not going to go sell the closet to somebody and keep ownership of the rest of the property. So it's illiquid in the sense that it's kind of all or nothing and it's not a quick transaction. So keep that in mind as you're understanding what income can you actually plan on because that's what matters to your retirement plan. So those are the financial aspects, but there are also personal aspects. And these could range widely and range dramatically between each individual person. But sometimes, for example, people just love real estate. They love something tangible. They love something that they can visit and see and improve and work on. That's perfectly fine. You can't necessarily go work on a share of stock. It just exists electronically in your custodian or in your online app. If you own a share of McDonald's, you know, there's really nothing you can do to improve the management of McDonald's. Now, you could go eat a tremendous amount of Big Macs and hope that that somehow skews the value of your stock upward, but probably not realistic. And also, you've spent a lot of money on Big Macs that is going to outweigh any increase in the cost of McDonald's stock. So if you like being hands-on with something, if you like the projects, if you like the improvement, that is actually another area where you can improve the valuation of real estate is you can control it, you can improve it, you can renovate it. You can't necessarily do that with stocks. So know yourself. Is that something that you'd like to do? If so, that could be something that tilts in the favor of real estate. 
Or maybe you want to keep a home in the property for future generations. I've met plenty of people like this. They've just had real estate in the family forever. And it's just part of a family tradition. It's not necessarily what's the best rate of return. It's not necessarily how do I optimize everything. They just like the understanding or like knowing that they have property that will flow to their children, maybe their children's children, and it just stays in the family for generations. Again, that's perfectly fine if that's what you and your family would like to do. Or maybe you don't want to be a landlord. Maybe you look at real estate and say, gosh, it could give me a better rate of return, but I do not want to be a landlord. I don't want to have to deal with tenants. I don't want to have to deal with repairs. I don't want to have to deal with taking phone calls when I'm on vacation or doing something else. I don't want to have to work with a property manager who's going to take a percentage of what I'm doing. If that's you, well, then great. That maybe is a reason not to own real estate, even if it can provide superior returns. You need to make sure you're doing, you're investing in something that works with your lifestyle and your goals and what you want to be able to accomplish. Or maybe you look at real estate and say, you know what? It is a better rate of return. I'm just not comfortable with the risk factors. People think of real estate as more stable and more secure than investing in the stock market, but I wholeheartedly disagree. When you own real estate, it's wonderful, but it is a single property subject to risks that are associated with anything when you only own one of them. Now, compare that to the stock market. The stock market seems risky because we just think of these green and red colors that are flashing on a screen, and that's scary and uncertain, and it seems like a big gamble. But next time you're driving down the road, notice what you see. Are you passing Fords and GMs and Teslas? Okay, well, those are all publicly traded companies that you could own if you're just owning the entire stock market. Are you driving past a McDonald's? Are you driving past a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo? Those are all companies that you could own. Do you have an iPhone? Do you have an Apple Watch? When you open up your computer, is it a MacBook? That's a company that you can own. It's hard to go very far. It's maybe impossible to go very far. Everything from the jeans that you're wearing to the car that you're driving to the watch that's on your hand to the food that you're buying to the prescriptions that you're taking. These are all publicly traded companies. And when you're diversified in the stock market, you're owning a little bit of everything. So you are so well diversified. You are owning all the great companies of the world or all the great public companies of the world. Whereas when you own real estate, yes, it's wonderful and has a potential for outperformance, but it is still a single piece of property compared to these companies where you are commanding or you're owning companies that command revenue and profits in the billions and billions and trillions and trillions when you add all that up. So there's many different factors here. One thing I would add to is a lot of people, they will grow their wealth with real estate and then they get to retirement and they say, you know what? I'd rather not maintain this. I don't want to have to worry about being a landlord anymore when I'm no longer working. There are things called DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trusts. I should probably do an entire episode on these and unpack them in more detail. But when you sell real estate, you can exchange that into a like property and you don't have to pay any taxes on that. You defer the taxes, you exchange the property. In most cases, you're buying another piece of property, but you're still the manager. You're still the landlord. You're still the one that has to do the improvements and take care of it. Well, what some people will do is they'll identify a DST, Delaware Statutory Trust. They will 1031 exchange their property proceeds into a DST. And with that, it's professionally managed. It is truly passive. They start receiving a paycheck every month. And they can choose different DSTs that they want to exchange into. There are companies that all they do is manage DSTs and they'll offer you a choice. Do you want a triple net lease portfolio of a store in Mississippi? Or do you want an apartment building in Houston? Do you want an Amazon warehouse in Colorado? Do you want a healthcare facility or healthcare office space in, I don't know, California? 
So whatever it is, the beautiful thing is you don't have to go buy the entire Amazon warehouse. You don't have to go buy the entire apartment complex. You don't have to go buy the entire healthcare office space. And I'm, of course, just making these examples up, but they exist. What you're doing is in the same way with a mutual fund or an index fund, you're putting your money into a fund and then you are collectively owning a whole bunch of individual stocks. Well, with a DST, you're pooling your money with other investors and then it's professionally managed to purchase different types of real estate across the country according to what you would like. So that is another option too. If people are saying, I love real estate, I've done it, I don't want to sell it, I've got these huge embedded gains, do you do an exchange into a DST? So again, that's not off topic, but that could be a separate episode that maybe I'll do at another time. But at the end of the day, as you're looking at real estate and does this fit into your financial plan, for many people, it absolutely does. For many people, it absolutely doesn't. So understand what's the rate of return you can expect. Understand what part of that rate of return can you actually live on versus what's tied up in real estate. Understand both the benefits and the risk of leverage. As you're doing this, also making sure you're understanding what fits your lifestyle better, not just your financial plan and your investment plan, but what fits your lifestyle better. Once you start to understand the different components of this, then you can really make a good decision as to what makes most sense for you. So that is it for today. I hope that was helpful. Please be sure to check out our YouTube channel. It is under Root Financial Partners, where we have a lot more content just like this dedicated to helping you create that secure retirement. Please be sure to leave a review. Please be sure to leave a comment if you're liking this. And I will see you all next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.